Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Latin, Episode 4 on the Fleming Foundation. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and on this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure, as always. We're going to be delving deeper in today, so third declension, uh, eye stems, dative case, lots of things. So um, where should we start, Dr. Fleming? Well, I think... um, uh I think I'll give uh, one or two words at the beginning just to clarify what we're doing. Then I'm going to ask you to read the text of the the opening of the uh, uh, Book of Acts in the Vulgate translation. But uh, before getting to that, uh, I, I, I do want to remind our listeners that uh, I'm, we're not presenting these podcasts as an organized Latin course, but they are forays into the Latin language and to help it for, uh, for adults and uh, mature children to help understand some of how the language functions, how it can be studied. It's, uh, it's an enrichment course, and I urge people, uh, if they haven't learned a lot of Latin in the past, to go out and get one of the texts we, that uh, we've recommended uh, in earlier podcasts. Or, of course, you can just email us through the, our website or, uh, or even make a telephone call, and I'm happy to advise you on the selection of a Latin course or text. <clears throat> but now let's get on to the Acts of the Apostles. Of course, this is the beginning of the description of Pentecost, a season which will soon be upon us. And uh, Stephen, if you would read Et cum complerentur. Okay, Et cum complerentur dies Pentecostes errant omnes pariter in eodem loco et factus est repente de celo sonus tamquam advenientis spiritus vehementis, et replevi totam domum ubi erant sedentes, et apuet apareverunt ilis despertitiae, despertite, lingue tamquam ignisidique supra singulos eorum. Shall I keep reading? Um, that's fine for now. What I want to look at is the alternation of tenses in this. This, of course, is the description of the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles. Uh, I don't have a a translation in front of me. It says roughly when the days of Pentecost were were being fulfilled, they were all together in the same place, and uh, suddenly there was a sound from heaven, uh, just as of a strong wind or spirit coming down, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and uh, tongues, uh, uh, s- s- you know, separated tongues of, of fire, as of fire, appeared to them. Now, in English, uh, and in most translations that you'll read of this, it's hard to get a, a good feeling for what uh, a grammarian would call a verbal aspect. Now, I'm going to talk about verbal aspect later on in the program, but let me translate this in a way that overemphasizes the aspect. The aspect is the difference, not of time, but of, of uh, the 
whether an action is regarded as completed or not completed. And if it's not completed, it's because it's either going on continuously or repeatedly or habitually. So when the days of Pentecost were being fulfilled, in other words, it's an ongoing process, and they were all being there together in the same place, again, an enduring, ongoing process, and then, but a sound happened. In other words, this, this, the, 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 the sound of the, of the wind rushing in or of the, of the Spirit coming upon them, this is like a thunderclap. It, ha- it happens, bang, factus est, and it replay with, and, it, and again, instantaneous, and it filled the whole house, and then where they were sitting, ubi erant sedentes, and there appeared, again, so all, there appeared to them these, these tongues as of fire, etc., and, and they began to speak. Again, so all of the things, um, I don't want to make too much of this, because obviously no, no essential Christian teaching depends on whether we get the, the sense of the verbs right, but it is a little, it enhances our feeling for the scene a little bit to realize that half the verbs are describing ongoing processes that are taking place, and the other half are, are all these, these instant happenings, which is the arrival of the Holy Spirit. I'd also point to one peculiar thing uh, in this, that if you, if you study classical Latin, you'll realize there's something wrong here. For example, um, ubi erant sedentes, literally where they were sitting. Well, we say that all the time in English. I was sitting, but you can't say that in Latin. And down in good Latin, uh, in classical Latin, and a few, uh, a little bit farther, erant autem in Jerusalem, habitantes. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem uh, religious men who were Jews. So these are this use of the present participle, uh, habitantes, in, in this case, and uh, above there it was, I forget what it was. But uh, these present participles plus the verb to be, this is not a legitimate tense formation in, uh, in classical Latin, but it is very common in medieval Latin. So we see here in, the, uh, in, in, in uh, Jerome's Vulgate, we can see the, uh, uh, one of the tendencies which develops in medieval Latin and in modern languages, in French, Italian, but also in English, this tendency toward putting verb forms together to make so-called paraphrastic constructions, like I am going. Uh, and there's only, one, there's only one real paraphrastic tense in Latin, and that's the use of the future, uh, future participle. Okay, well, we'll go on. I'll explain uh, what this may signify later on when we take it up. Okay. Now let's let's uh, move on. One other question, Stephen, that we often I often get asked, and people often talk about, is of course how how to study Latin. And I I have I always give the same answers uh, because I think they are the, the the true answers. It's like saying how do you learn to play baseball? Well, you learn to throw and. Swing, take a swing at the Memorization is a very important part of Latin learning, and I know we've had our conversation before about um, the systems that say you don't have to memorize 
Uh, you just have to learn it as a native would. This is like doing a, like if there were a Pimsleur Latin course. Somebody mm-hmm. is, is it true that there's a what is that compute the big computer course that everybody uses for learning Portuguese or German? Uh, you know what I mean. Uh, uh, um, Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone. Is there a Rosetta Stone Latin? Somebody um, indicated there was. I I don't know if that's true. But you see, these things are really totally yeah, yeah. counterproductive because one of the great advantages of learning Latin is that it teaches you mental discipline. And uh, you're never going to speak Latin naturally. So how to memorize? <clears throat> well, I want to here t- take up the question of, uh, very briefly, of memorizing uh, nouns, adjectives, pronouns. Now, if you take an adjective like, like bonus, bona, bonum, Etc. I have had students who have uh, had had other Latin courses, and they will do it as if it's three separate nouns. For example, bonus, boni, bono, bonum, bono, etc. Well, this this, in other words, you the, you miss the advantage of having a comparison of the masculine, feminine, and neuter endings all for the same form, like nominative, singular, masculine, feminine, neuter. And so always memorize them, I think, bonus, bona, bonum, which uh, my impression is that is the traditional way. Um, Try, when when you're memorizing these things, try not to do what my students always did, and and I would try to break them of it and interrupt them, but they'll they'll do something like hick hike hoke huyus 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 hui 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 hook hook hook. Try to avoid the sing song, and uh, the sing song is helpful for memorizing it, but it, it it doesn't really put it into your brain what you're saying. Sometimes it's very useful to say, uh, uh, not often, but occasionally to say. Nominative singular, hick, hike, hoke. Genitive singular, huyus, huyus, huyus. Dative singular, huik, huik, huik. Because that way you're, you're not just memorizing uh, gibberish, which a lot of students treat Latin as if it is gibberish, but you're, you're memorizing it and sticking it with little memory markers. Um, think, now, one of the things which I strongly uh, recommend is that, and I, and I always put it on test this way, try to uh, take a, a, perhaps a noun, an adjective, and a demonstrative pronoun, for example, and memorize it as a, uh, a phrase together. For, uh, but take things from, take the words from different ways of uh, declension. So, for example, uh, ille bonus kiwis. That good citizen. You see, ille is a is a, a pronominal declension. A bonus is regular first second declension. In this case, second declension masculine, and kiwis a third declension. I step down. If you memorize it that way, ille bonus kiwis. You know, illius boni kiwis. It's it's as if you're 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 getting over the idea that endings determine the relationship of words, and you realize it's grammatical function. That yeah. sing song that you're referring to, Dr. Fleming, I've seen it in other languages too. I think the first time I was learning German, we have that same der die das. There's something yes. about the 
the, the same fun nature, I think, that people are grasping for to help you memorize it. But I think you're really onto something with this uh, Ile Bonus Kiwis or the Hake Prudens Puella because you're, you're, forcing, you're forcing that paradigm on instead of relying on um, a rhythm in your background. Yeah. You know, if it's just memorizing lines of Virgil, you know, having having the, a sing-song rhythm so that it sticks in your brain, or, you know, I have, I've been insomniac all my life, so I'm always memorizing something. It's got to the point that the Roman emperors are too easy, so it, I, it doesn't even put me to sleep because I can do it with 90% of my brain thinking about something else. So now I've started on the papacy. <laughs> <laughs> So I've got up to Pope number 50, but uh, for things like that, just memory tricks and sing-song accentuation and things like that, because you're you're not memorizing anything you have to use. But with Latin, the structure and the the grammar and the, the meaning is all very important. Let's move on, as is our wont, to the subject of uh, nouns and pronouns and adjectives um, and take up the third declension. Uh, from your, going back to your student days, what sorts of nouns are in the third declension? They're nouns that, uh, whose stem ends in either a consonant or a noun, an I, a stem. In other words, a word, let's take any, any word like orps, orbis, or, or, or better yet, uh, better yet, let's take uh, a... Uh, Kiwis, homo. Yes, and see, these are, but something that, um, oh my, um, yeah, rex regis, for example. Okay. Rex regis. The stem is reg. And uh, and and and, uh, and so the, the stem ends at a consonant, whereas with so-called I-stem words, and we'll get onto them in a minute. With I-stem words, the uh, the stem has an I in it, and uh, they're treated slightly differently. The basic endings of the third declension are the, the nominative singular either has no ending or it ends in s. The genitive singular ends in is, I-S, the dative in E, which is sort of universally the sign of the dative in, uh, in uh, Western lang- in Indo-European languages. It, it tends to dr- disappear in some forms in Latin, but here we have it purely. Uh, M or M, that is uh, the letter M or E-M, and uh, uh, E, that is the letter E or I in the ablative. The plural is ace, um, or eum, ibus, ace, or is, and ibus. Now, there are several, I don't, I don't know how technical one wants to get, there are several uh, types of nouns in the third declension. And if you're going to set aside uh, I-stem nouns, there are nouns that end in a so-called liquid that liquid consonants, R, L, N, M, and the, these nouns typically, not universally, do not add an, do not have an S in the nominative singular. A word like consul, meaning consul, a Roman magistrate, consul, consulus, nomen, nominis, labor, laboris, nectaris, arbor, arboris, etc. So, uh, 
things that confuse the students is uh, sometimes they realize, gee, the third, we, it, the uh, first and second declension are very regular. Well, how come how come the nominative singular and the third declension, you don't know what it's going to be? Well, that's not entirely true. If it's a common noun with that ends in a that the stem ends in a liquid consonant, probably you're not going to have an s in the nominative singular. Uh, some a lot of nouns where you have an n in the stem, like like take the genitive of the word for lion, leonis. Well, the N disappears. It's dropped. They don't say leon. They say leo. So you get leo, leonis, imago, imaginis. So that's uh, so those those are all liquid endings, and they tend not to have an S. So if you just this is again, it's very important always to note. Uh, when you're memorizing a noun, you don't remember. You don't just memorize what, the, like, uh, oh, yeah, aqua means water. No, what you memorize is water in Latin is aqua, genitive, aquae, feminine. So if, you're, if you say the word name, you say, ah, n- Latin. Latin is nomen, nominis, and it's neuter. So the stem you get, remember, from the genitive. So the stem is uh, is nomin, or the stem of leo of, of lion is not leo but leon. You get it from the genitive. So that the the, the so-called base form or or stem of the word, you you cannot necessarily get by looking at the nominative. Always go to the genitive and drop the ending in in this case uh, is. So we we have this. So if you, the noun ends in R, L, M, or N, not many in M, very few. Uh, you have uh, you're not likely to get a uh, a uh, the um, excuse me the letter S in the nominative. Now let's more ordinarily uh, you do, and so uh, it's it's quite normal. Uh, consonant the other consonant stems like. Princeps, principis, orps, orbis, rex, regis, itas, itatis. Now, some of these are uh, you have to look at twice because, for example, rex. Well, that's an X. That's not an S. Well, X is a way of writing the sound CS. That's all. CS or GS are spelled X in Latin. So it tells you, yes, X always means there's an S. And with itas, the word for uh, age, itas, the, the genitive itatis, tells you the stem is itat, itat, or etat in uh, ecclesiastical Latin, etat. But then when you add the S, it became etats or itats. Well, you, uh, that's, uh, that's a Slavic sound. You can't say that in in, in, uh, in so it just becomes simplified to, to itas. A, a, a really tiny amount of linguistic uh, understanding will help uh, the uh, help an adult or mature student of Latin to be able to understand a lot that he hasn't even memorized. So, for example, I've been boring you to tears talking you, to you all about rhoticism. Rhoticism is the Latin rule that, in general, an, uh, an S between two vowels, T 
turns into an R. And that's why the infinitive is, ends in portare instead of the historically uh, por, uh, portase. So in these uh, <clears throat> third declension nouns, we have, we have uh, words like, uh, well, genus, generis, type or kind, genus, we say in English. Well, the stem is G-E-N-E-R, gener. But gen, but if it but get, but the uh, historically, of course, genesis was the was the original uh, Latin genitive. But s between two vowels turns into an r. So you can begin to see. So you, you're always if you see a word like genus or opus in the uh, third declension Latin noun, you're going to guess before you even learn it, that the genitive is going to be probably E-R-I-S. So any questions on this? Uh... I, I think I'm feeling on behalf of our listeners, Dr. Fleming, that same feeling I, I felt, uh, I don't know, as, as a fifth grader when I first stumbled into the third declension, it's that I don't get to fall back on those sing-songs anymore, right? If we have the first declension and the second declension, it's quite regular. We have a couple exceptions in terms of gender, a poeta, pirata, agricola. Uh, and then with, with the second declension, we have a couple uh, different, we have some neuters, but all bets are off when we get to the third declension. I, I, feel, I feel like uh, we have the, the differences in the accusative singular and the, uh, the genitive plural, as well as the variants in the ablative singular. So this, I think, only hammers home your previous point is you're going to have to memorize this. You're going to have to get in deep and and really learn this. It's the only, there's, there's no shortcut to the third declension, I guess I would say. No, it's, it's painful, and it's painful because, first of all, there are a variety of types. We've talked about... Uh, words where the stem ends in uh, a liquid, R, L, M, or N, and, uh, and then there are the problems of the stems that end, in, uh, that end in S, which turns to R in most of the forms, and, and sometimes there are, in obscure words, there can, be, uh, there can be even sort of exceptions to the, to the normal rules. And then you get to the problem of the I-stem nouns. And the I-stem nouns are treated a little differently because there, for example, uh, you almost always, although there, there are, there's at least one exception, you almost always have a genitive plural in I-U-M, like, for example, urbium, of the cities. And you have, an, in neuter words, you often have, you typically have a ablative singular in long I, and in masculine and feminine words, the uh, the predominant form, although they don't give it in textbooks, the predominant form of the accusative plural is is, not ace. But again, this is a question of numbers because you'll find both forms. And uh, to make things worse, you'll find uh, Roman manuscripts with uh, with uh, uh, not always in agreement on this. We do know there's an interesting thing. Uh, well, interesting to me anyway, <laughs> that uh, a um, an ancient commentator on Virgil said that if you look at Virgil's manuscript, and he he had actually what Virgil had written, you know, uh, in his own hand. He says that Virgil uses alternate forms, like, for example, there's an archaic uh, 
demonstrative adjective alle versus ille, or the east form versus the ace form for I stem nouns. And he said uh, Virgil is quite careful at, uh, about using these, but he uses them for their sound value. In other words, for their poet, because he, he's constructing a line, it's, it, he wants it to sound musical, he wants to repeat a vowel or contrast a vowel, and this is, this is something which a student really cannot be expected to grasp. So what you have to do is and look, look at your textbook very carefully. Whatever they teach you as the norm, uh, you may hope they're correct, they're not always correct on this, they, they tend to overlook that ease ending in the accusative plural, because it's too confusing for I-stem nouns. But whatever it is, and then learn but to recognize the possibility of variations, because Latin is not, we don't just pick one year. We're going to study Latin from the year, uh, the time of Julius Caesar or whatever, because, you know, Latin goes on for hundreds of years as a literary and civilized language. So we have to take, take this into account. Going on to I-STEM, uh, I-STEM nouns, they give you, uh, in all the books I was taught with and all the books I taught from, they give very complicated rules. And I'm not so sure this is that helpful for a first or second year student. And uh, what I always taught my students was to look at, to, to, to memorize a couple of model nouns. For example... Nouns that go like kiwis, kiwis. In other words, these are two, two syllable nouns where the nominative and genitive is the same, or, and a, a subset are nouns I des building, I dis. And that's, that's, so anything that goes like, that goes hostis, hostis, phenis, phenis, kaides, kaides. So that, that covers a huge amount of territory. So just think about those, that, that model. And the other model are, uh, noun, uh, they're mostly one syllable, not exclusively, mostly one syllable nouns where the base of the noun ends in two consonants. Now, where do we go to get the base? We do not go to the nominative. We go to which case? The genitive, although the data would do just as well. So you look at a word like uh, nox, night. Well, the genitive is noctis. And, and by the way, you, would, you, you split it up that way, noctis. So in other words, the base uh, ends in CT, Double consonant, one syllable. So any noun that is that looks like that that follows that pattern is an I stem noun. So nox, noctis, orps, orbis, uh, etc. And once you've done that, if you memorize those models that those are I stems, you've really got you know ninety five percent of what you need to know about how to recognize an I stem noun. And, and, and since I, most of what you're going to be doing is reading Latin, although I'm, I'm, I want to emphasize writing Latin is vitally important when you're learning it. But most of when you're after you've learned some Latin, you're going to be mostly reading it, and so being able to recognize these differences without necessarily having a creative and positive ability to use them, and you you won't be confused, for example, when you see that the genitive plural of canis canis. Uh, it should be conium, but more typically it's conum. I don't know why. It, it's just one of languages. Even Latin is not 100% rational. 
And so there are these funny little exceptions, but you could see conum looks like a genitive plural. Hmm. I've, have I succeeded in confusing you entirely, Stephen? No, no. I, I, I guess I just wanted to balance what I said about the, the third declension being really challenging by saying, I think, is it fair to say that if, if the students can get through the third declension, that the fourth and the fifth declensions are much more forgiving, similar to the first yes. and the second declensions? The fourth and fifth declensions, uh, except for a few little glitches in the fifth, but the fourth and fifth declensions are very uh, regular, and there are no new endings. You know, all the end, they look like this, the fourth declension looks like it's a combination of uh, the second and third. And, uh, the, and uh, there, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about uh, the fourth declension uh, next time. And uh, it's, uh, it's, 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 as, it's as simple as anything in Latin. So, yeah, the, the third declension is, it's the big hump. It's the hard part. But, uh, again, people who are following this, uh, I urge you to uh, send in uh, to the website uh, or uh, communicate in any way you wish, even by an old-fashioned letter, or especially if you have a... Uh, a papyrus, papyrus reed stylus, and uh, and uh, and a piece of papyrus to write on with. That that would be especially grateful to us. And um, it must be composed. The question must be composed in Latin. Exactly, right? and 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 uh, it points points off if there are any grammatical or spelling errors. And uh, in fact, we'll send a, a censor to your house to put a <laughs> to put a big mark on the door to tell pure Latinists to avoid this dwelling. Uh, but <laughs> Short, short of that, uh, but we're, we're very much open to, uh, to questions. Now let's go on, to, keeping up uh, uh, discussion of nouns, let's go on to the dative case. Last, last class, we, or last, uh, the last podcast, we talked about the, the genitive case. And in these discussions, I'm trying to get at... I, I think of it as a kind of almost philosophy of, of cases. That is, you can simply memorize 36 common uses of the ablative case, uh, or you can look at it, the ablative case, as having tended, three basic tendencies and, or, or meanings, uh, relationships, and all these other, the 36 uses mostly can be understood within that. And so, just as we explained last time that the genitive case is not the case of possession, but the case that by which one noun depends on or modifies another, uh, that is, limits the meaning of, then you can see how, well, yes, possession does that, but, that, but then being the object of a, of, a, of a noun that expresses verbal action or affection, all of those fall into that category. Now, when, uh, when you were a student, Stephen, what did they tell you the dative case was for? Um, two or four, exactly as you say, indirect, uh, indirect yeah. relationships. Yeah, it was the, and I was, we were always taught it was, the, it's the case of indirect object. That's why dative means, of course, the case of giving. So the most ordinary use of the dative case is John gives the book to his sister or to Mary or whatever. The to his sister uh, is, in the, is in the dative case. 
This is complicated in English a little bit because we don't always use to. And I've seen some really potty uh, uh, grammar books, both in English and in modern languages, that, that really make a hash out of this. But the fact is that John gave his sister a book is the same as John gave her a book, you know, <laughs> or gave to his sister. So we don't always use to or for. Uh, and, in fact, and with pronouns, we uh, typically do not. So it is the case of indirect actions. The accusative case, which we'll take up next time, the accusative case is limits the action of a verb, either by being a direct object or by limiting the time or the place or the intention, whatever. And so, you know, John hit the nail on the head, hit the nail, that is accusative case. It's, it's, a, it's the actor, the subject of the sentence, does something directly to uh, the, the recipient, to the object. Whereas the dative case is, is indirect. It is the person or thing for whom something is being done. So hence, I give it to you, I say it to you. I don't say you, I say to you, I speak to you. And so, and there's a whole, <clears throat> there's a whole raft of usages which flow from this. For example, there are lots of uh, intransitive verbs in Latin. An intransitive verb is a verb basically that doesn't take a direct object. And there are b verbs that mean basically to give pleasure or displeasure to give it, confer advantage or disadvantage, to help or harm, to bid or forbid. So uh, all of these words, most of them in Latin, most, of, mo most words with this sense in Latin, are followed by a dative case because the subject is not doing something directly to the object but is, but is doing something to or for him. We get verbs like placio, be pleasing to, imperare, to give orders to, no, uh, uh, no cere, no cere, to, to do harm to, invidere, to, to envy or give the evil eye to, etc. Now, if you, one of the things that I try to work with students is start by translating all these intransitive verbs a little bit clumsily with the word two or four. Instead of saying please, which implies a direct object, say be pleasing to. Instead of mm -hmm. saying harm, which could imply a direct object, say be harmful to. Instead of uh, imparare, instead of saying order, say give an order to. And that will begin to de develop a kind of intuitive sense. And uh, it's clumsy. But it will be helpful. And notice that you can't do that with, uh, with a lot of direct action verbs. You can't say uh, John did something in, in order that uh, the nail be hit on the head. No, I mean, it's direct. It's direct. John loves Mary. It's a, it's a direct statement. And it's, it's hard to, to, tra to, to come up with a version involving the word two or four. And so this could be helpful. There are other uses of the uh, of the. There are many other uses of the dative case, but they all flow from this idea 
of the the person who is being indirectly affected by the action or, of, of the verb. For example, um, the dative of uh, a personal interest. This is the person from whose point of view or to whose advantage or disadvantage something is being done. Now, I'm not going to, at this point, until we get more deeper into the language, I'm not going to get into too many, uh, um, too many examples. This is, there's something close to this, which is the dative of reference, and it, it used to be things like, um, uh, I would be told examples by British professors like, knock me the door, boy. But I don't think we say, uh, or... Uh, uh, I don't think we say uh, such things anymore, but, but we we still have a little bit of a sense of that kind of dative. The person in whose interest or whose attention is being grabbed by by, by making a statement. Uh, and uh, finally, uh, again, there are many, and, and we'll return to these subjects over and over as we get deeper into the language, because I don't want to throw the whole the whole uh, dative case at you uh, in one uh, one brief period, but a very common use of the dative is to show possession, and this uses the verb to be, so it uses essere. So instead of saying I have a book, you know habeo librum, you could say uh, liber est mihi. The book is to me. The book belongs to me. Now, these don't mean quite uh, identical things. They can be used. It's not always difficult. It's not always easy to make this distinction. The, the, the slight difference of emphasis is that when you use the dative of possession, the book is to me, liber est mihi, or the, it is to the girl, liber est pueli, or liber pueli est. When you do that, uh, it is indicating uh, not just you happen to have in your possession this moment. You know, you picked up a book and you say, "Ah, yeah, I just bought this. This book. This book. Uh, I have this book." Or you know, so I could hand you something, and you could say, "Yes, I have the book." Whereas if you say the book is to me, you, you're implying a stronger, more intimate, permanent relationship between you and the book, and so it's. And this, this is very important, and by the way, it's the same thing in Greek, and uh, you find similar constructions, although not, not so universal, similar constructions in French and Italian. Could, could I, could I, I know we, we hadn't talked about this before today's show, uh, Dr. Fleming, but I want to explore this just a little bit further, because you mentioned something where we have something the same in Latin and in Greek, and that I don't think comes out very clearly in the English, and I'm thinking of uh, the gospel gospel of saint john chapter 2 verse 4 uh our, our lord is reacting to the wedding feast at cana and in latin he says quid mihi et tibi est mulier right so in, in 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 english it doesn't always come through as clearly that both are in the dative he's saying what is this yeah. to you and to me and i think it's the same in the greek if i'm not mistaken that the, yes. that that case is this, uh, this is clear this is a this is a date that's the date of interest what 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 you know it 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 it, 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 it it's some there's a whole lot you could you could to get the sense of the latin you might have to do three or four english sentences what you is this any of your business 
<laughs> is this any of my business? What? How does it? How? How? How am I involved? How do I own this project? You know, all of that is you know is uh, it's vague, but it is a it is a special kind of uh, grammatical and therefore uh, personal relationship. Yeah, that's a very important point. And uh, again, it you know, we have. You know, Latin <clears throat> Latin partly evolved to a, some extent, not 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 very much, but it evolved somewhat in response to their reading of the Greeks, and and of course, <clears throat> modern Romance languages developed directly out of Latin, and English developed uh, out out of uh, originally out of a Germanic language, but it was it was Frenchified and Latinized after the uh, Norman conquest. And only really the English began to be tamed and brought into shape as a useful uh, language, you know, in the 16th century as Latin grammarians got a hold of it. So it was a lot of the richness and toughness and suppleness of English came from having a Germanic language that was being stretched, you know, by Latin. And it makes the English... On the one hand, a uniquely expressive and beautiful language when it's used correctly, but it's also perhaps one of the easiest languages to abuse because there are only two ways of learning, of learning good English. And I don't mean the English they use on national public radio. Uh, and one way is, of course, to grow up in a very literate family where people speak the Queen's English every day, and uh, or the, the American version thereof. And so you grow up simply, naively, intuitively imitating your parents. And you, when you hear the English of the marketplace or the English of, uh, of the movies, you say, oh, that's dreadful. Uh, <clears throat> this is getting rarer and rarer. My father spoke perfect English so that when I went to school, I never bothered to look at the grammar books because I could, I could write and speak without making an error. And then I had a really mean 10th grade teacher, Miss Caldwell, and she, she gave you these tests where you're supposed to find the error in the sentence. Well, I had no interest in that. I flunked test after test after test. And she was said, Tom Fleming, how can, you, how can you fail this test when you never make a mistake in your compositions or in your speech? Well, I will say, uh, as much as I hated her at the time, I realized later when I was in college that she had done me a very big favor because she had taught me how to take these stupid tests. <laughs> and uh, and so from then on, I could I could always uh, get a hundred on the test. But the the point is, <clears throat> testing and diagramming sentences and all that grammar stuff they try to throw at you in school and they, they and less and less of it, by the way, it's to serve a purpose. And the purpose is to speak good English. The uh, the other way you learn, of course, is by studying Latin. And it's very hard if you don't grow up in a very literate family. It's very hard to learn good English if you don't study Latin. Not only the vocabulary, do you constantly misuse it, but it's also the question of the structure and the grammar. I've been working with some younger writers, and uh, and uh, I've one in particular, and and he sends me stuff, and he doesn't know about the subjunctive. You know, he says uh, he'll say. Uh, uh, if if uh, George Washington was to be alive today, I mean, it's things like that. And, and you think, well, gosh, didn't you learn that in the fourth or fifth grade? And the answer is apparently no. 
So to to be in, to speak in English that is part of a tradition that goes back to the 14th and 15th century and has produced the masterpieces of our language, including things like the uh, the, the King James Bible the, and the uh, Cranmer's Prayer Book and the works of Shakespeare and Milton and Tennyson and Wordsworth, to be and to, and the works of Hemingway and Fitzgerald. To, to, to master that language, it's very hard to do it without Latin. It can be done, but it's much harder. It's much harder. You, you, you bring up diagramming sentences. I wonder, do they even do that anymore, Dr. Fleming? Um, I don't think so, things. because, see, diagram, I could be wrong, but my understanding, by the way, I hated diagramming sentences, and I could never be troubled <laughs> to learn how to, which way to slant the lines. But <clears throat> I, uh, because my, my knowledge, my, my grammatical understanding, until I was, say, in my 30s, my grammatical understanding of English came mostly from the study of Latin and Greek. And I simply applied the categories, which is what the people who wrote the grammar books in the 16th to 17th century did. But um, diagramming came about, uh, I believe, as a, as a development of structural linguistics, where the structures of languages were, were important. So the teachers took this linguistic theory, uh, which is a, val- I mean, it's a valid approach to studying a language. I think they sort of beat it to death, the way they beat phonics to death in the, uh, in the uh, 60s, 70s, and 80s. You know, these are methods... Uh, they, they, they put the, they put the cart before the horse. They're, they're methods that are supposed to serve the purpose, which is the acquisition of good English, and putting <laughs> putting marks on a paper and, and uh, indicating this stuff that doesn't doesn't necessarily help, and, and it sometimes gets in the way. It's been it's better than what they do now because what they do now is based on you know generative transformational grammatical theories of Noam Chomsky and his disciples at, at MIT and elsewhere, and that is, uh, if I may say so, it is total baloney. It is on the level of phrenology. I've noticed that uh, the, that the Chomsky people rarely. Uh, the, the the big ones, the big the big the- theoreticians rarely know any language but English, and then they they speak that very badly because their theory takes uh, precedence. Uh, I was once uh, at a lecture where one of them, uh, a leading a leading Chomskyite from Yale, and uh, he said, "There's no, English is a sloppy language because there's we we can say uh, I like him singing and I like his singing, and they mean the same thing." Well, some wise guy, I won't mention who he is because it's one of the two of us on this uh, <laughs> in this phone call, in this podcast, a wise guy said, but one of them is, uh, is a gerund and one of them is a present participle. In one case, when you say, I like him singing, you mean I like what, him as he is singing. Whereas if you say, I like his singing, it, you're, you're emphasizing the noun, the, the, the noun gerund singing. And the professor looked out and he said, uh, we must speak different dialects, as indeed we do. <laughs> so, this, this, uh, these, so that, this horrible theory, and by the way, Chomsky's a brilliant man. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying he, he isn't, but it has, it, it's, 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 it's like the way they ruined math teaching. They had some theories of math which have their own validity, but it has nothing to do with teaching somebody eight years old how to add, subtract, multiply, divide, etc. So they've ruined the teaching of math and English by imposing theories which are of, of questionable value to begin with, because they're, they are on a theoretical level, but have nothing to do with elementary instruction. 
Well, and and you you mentioned that uh, someone could grow up in a highly literate family. Even if they didn't, they would grow up in a family in which the parents had some sense. Uh, So when you came home and you said you wanted to speak and talk good, you'd be correct. You would say, no, that's not how you say that. And you would be annoyed and then you'd go correct because that's what your parents told you to do. But we're being told today, and at least I'm, I'm, I'm reading that this is a new trend, that this is a racist and this is part of the, the, the patriarchy that's being imposed on us that, uh, you know, not speaking correctly is part of your freedom, I suppose. Uh, and it's, uh, it's racist to correct people's grammar. Uh, I was yeah, reading an article oh, about this. Oh, the here's day. the question. Who is the racist? The what they like to call grammar Nazis who run around correcting people and who deprive people of a uh, a language which the definite article consists of a uh, participle forming form from a verb which begins in F. Uh, in other words, every other word in this dialect. It's a very, shall we say, an unrich dialect, a dialect that guarantees that you will never earn more than $15,000 a year unless you enter into the rap industry, and uh, that you are essentially always placed at the bottom of every social and economic hierarchy. Uh, it's the, of course, the, the mean grammar Nazi who insists on stripping these students of their native dialect and teaching them standard English, which then allows them to go to colleges and universities and have careers and make money and practice professions. Well, what a horrible thing to do. The opposition to teaching standard English to, to, uh, to minority children is a lot like um, there's a movement among, uh, among deafness advocates to make it illegal to have, uh, because deafness is often easily correctable. You can be 100% deaf, but there's, there are operations now they can do. But the deafness uh, advocates say deafness is part of your identity, and you have a right to remain deaf all your life. And that parents should not be allowed to get, inflict this operation, restoring a hearing to their children. Now think about that. But that's exactly like uh, what people who advocate the use of ebonics in school, or the you know the persistence of dialect, or don't teach um, immig- Mexican immigrant children uh, uh, English. It, it condemns them to uh, a life of dependence upon the government and and criminality. And I I used, uh, the so-called neoconservatives would say this is an unintended consequence of of uh, of, of something that's essentially a noble desire. But no, it's not unintended. It's an intended consequence. But by not teaching children anything, by not teaching them basic skills like math and English, much less Latin, these people are kept as permanent serfs on a plantation owned by the government. I hate to intrude politics, but ign- ignorance guarantees that you will you will vote for the people who promise you welfare. Well, and dear listeners, it, we did mean to use the date of case to indirectly get to this subject. So that was not uh, without purpose. Oh, why don't you take yeah. us through to our, our last segment, our last couple segments of today's episode, Dr. Fleming. Good, good, because we are... Um, the... Third declension, uh, third third conjugation verbs. Uh, I'm just will just mention, and we'll take this up in detail at uh, an, in our next uh, our next podcast. Uh, but uh, begin thinking. Third declension, third conjugation verbs are verbs basically uh, with 
with uh, without those strong stem vowels that we saw in the first and second conjugation, the long a and the long e. But we'll uh, we'll go into their formation uh, next time. Today, I want I wanted to go back to what we began with, and that is to talk about verbal aspect. We you know we we know that in when we study English or study Latin, we say you know verbs show. Uh, tense, which is time. They show uh, they show voice that is active or passive. Although, by the way, they don't learn that anymore in school. Uh, they they show mood. Whether uh, uh, and we talked last time a little bit about verbal mood. That is, uh, whether it's a, uh, it's indicative to make a statement, or whether it's uh, imperative to give a command, or subjunctive to talk about possibilities. But. Um, some languages have built into them something called verbal aspect, and all, all uh, Indo-European languages, uh, to some extent, have this in their formation. It is not really obvious in uh, Latin, although it is there, and it is much more obvious in classical Greek, and more obvious actually in modern Greek than in classical Greek and in Slavic languages. Verbal aspect is the distinction between whether the speaker uh, or the subject of the sentence is, is thinking of the action as a perfect, whole, complete, or thinking of it as ongoing or repeated or a habitual tendency. And we looked over some of those verbs that were being used to describe uh, the occasion at Pentecost. There, people were, uh, they were gathered together, they were doing this, they were feeling that, and then, and then a series of actions, you know, bang, 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 which were in perfective, uh, perfect tenses. In, in uh, Latin, the basic distinction is between, in the past tense, between the imperfect tense and the perfect tense. The imperfect tense, for example, uh, they, they all, all the, the imperfect tenses are the simplest because they all have the tense marker B-A. Amabam, amabas, amabat, amabamos, amabatis, amabant. These imperfect tenses uh, are almost always used to when the writer is viewing the action as not yet finished, either as uh, or uh, not viewing it from the perspective of being finished. So we often translate this into English as, you know, for example, amabat, he was loving, he used to love, as opposed to amawit, he loved, which would mean like the love, you know, the, the, the Cupid shot an arrow into him and, uh, and he fell in love. And there are many subtleties and distinctions about this, but this is really uh, built into uh, the Latin language. It's stronger in Greek, uh, and you, but uh, it is there in Latin. And as we get on and we can we start looking at it in things like the subjunctive, it becomes even uh, even clearer. But so part of Latin, in a formal way, like with these two tenses in particular. We say things which we have to talk around in English. In English, we have to use a f paraphrastic phrasing. I used to be in love, but now I hate her, you see. So, uh, these, the, in, so in English, it's not built into the We can express it, but we express it without, without clarity, and we're not required to express it. 
And so as a result, uh, we, don't, we don't necessarily think very clearly about this distinction. When you learn a Slavic language, it's interesting, uh, you know, you, you start listening to how Russians or Serbs or Croatians, when they, they'll say things like, um, well, I don't, think, uh, I don't think I'll be going there again. No, we'll just say, I won't go there again. But because they're using an imperfective verb to exp- in Slavic to express an ongoing or repeated action, they have to find a way of translating this into some sort of clumsy, indirect English. And so when you listen to Slavs talk, you can, you can, you can pay attention to this, because what it gives the Slav, of course, is uh, a way of uh, thinking about, about, about what the actions that are going on, a precision that we lack. And so it's an advantage to them that we don't have. In Latin, one of the problems comes in the present tense. Because in the Latin present, of course, all present tenses basically, you know, what's the great line of Mallarmé, le vierge, le vivace, le bel aujourd'hui, the, 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 the present is eternally happening. You know, it's, it, it, it can't be finished. So to speak of a perfected present seems a little funny, <clears throat> although there are Slavic verbs uh, that make this distinction. But in, in English, we can say, I go, or I am going, or I do go, especially in a question. Do I go, or do, do I stay, or do I go? Uh, and no, I'm not putting the clash there, by the way. Um, so, that's should I, anyway. But the, in Latin, there is no such distinction. A, take a, a verb like amo, I love, can, can be translated. I love, I am loving, I do love, I'm in the habit of loving. Uh, and, and so this seems to give English an advantage which, uh, because you can emphasize this, and it, it, it a little bit. But the point I was making earlier about the passage in, uh, in the Acts of the Apostles, we can see in vulgar Latin and going into uh, medieval Latin that they sort of recognize this problem, so they start saying things like uh, errant sedentes, they were sitting. Which is to, to, to a to a to a reader of classical Latin, it sounds comical, but you see, it 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 eliminates this ambiguity. It allows them to emphasize the continuous nature of of what's going on. Helpful at all? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, of course, in fact, I'd say, say Doctor Fleming, that's that's fantastic. That's amazing. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. That's really, that's very, 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 very good. Uh, if I were to look at Ann Coulter's Twitter, she's uh, been going crazy about Trump's foreign policy speech, and she's using some of those same adjectives. Awesome, amazing, wonderful. And you've got a bone to pick with that, Dr. Funny. Yes. Well, I, I hate to speak anything about this, uh, anything negative about the sainted Ann Coulter. I just wish she had learned to speak English at some point in her career, which uh, she has uh, not. I guess it's the problem of University of Michigan Law School or where, wherever it was she went. You know, English has this ter- modern English, especially American English, has this terrible problem. You send some poor fellow up into space. He's the first person up there. He's orbiting around the Earth, and he. He looks out the window and says, what do you see? It's fantastic. It's just <laughs> fantastic. 
Well, what do you mean by that? <clears throat> Fantastic means pertaining to or partaking of fantasy or imagination. I mean, are you saying it's like watching uh, the Disney movie Fantasia? What do you mean? And if he, today he'd be more likely to say awesome. I mean, it, it's, but we also say awesome about a new pop tune. We say awesome about some clashing colors in a shirt. <clears throat> awesome, tremendous, fabulous. That's fabulous. Uh, which means, of course, uh, something that belongs in a fairy tale or a, a fable. You know, so there are all these rich Latin words, which like tremendous. We we'll say, oh, that's you know, uh, um, it, that that steak is tremendous, meaning it's large. Well, what does tremendous mean? It means that which you should that should cause you to tremble. You know. Uh, uh, it, it, awesome means that which tends to inspire awe. Awful is that which is filled, that, that will fill you with awe. All these different words actually have a, uh, a clear and precise meaning, and we just use them uh, to mean, I like it. There's the famous uh, uh, beginning of C.S. Lewis's book, which we discussed in our book uh, evening event recently, uh, The Abolition of Man, <clears throat> where Lewis quotes a, a, a textbook for uh, schoolboys about te trying to teach them English, and that uh, uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge is in the mountains, and, and one person says that the mountains are pretty, and the other one says, not pretty, they're sublime. And Coleridge says, yes, he's right. And the textbook writer says, no, pretty and sublime are just people trying to describe that they like something. And the, the distinction is only in the feelings that the people have, that the words don't have any objective meaning. Now, and of course, by the end of it, by the end of the book, Lewis takes this argument and runs all the way to the idea of genetically re-engineering the human race to suit the ruling class. And by the way, talk about a prophetic book. That book is uh, uh, 1943, and uh, it's only being realized uh, in, in our lifetime, uh, the, the implications of it. But you see, this is what happened. But in, when the way we use words like tremendous, awesome, terrific... Well, terrific means inspiring terror. Uh, I, 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 when I was a kid, I was first stumped by this because um, I remember the line from, from uh, Gilbert and Sullivan's The Mikado, to him who's scientific, there is nothing that's terrific in the falling of a flight of thunderbolts. Well, why would science make you not, why would it make thunderbolts not seem terrific? Gee, they are terrific, aren't they? And, uh, and, of course, I, I had to then look up the word and realize, oh, yes, it means inspiring terror. I see the point. Mm. By the way, if you really, one way of learning English is to grow up uh, listening to <clears throat> learning and memorizing uh, Gilbert and Sullivan, because Gilbert was uh, an extremely careful user of the uh, English language. And I certainly, by the age of 10, I had a tremendous vocabulary just from looking up the words I didn't know in, uh, in uh, Gilbert and Sullivan operas. So, you know, we, we make fun, quite properly, of Donald Trump always saying, that's very, very, very bad. But actually, I prefer Trump's simplistic way of talking to the use of all of these meaningless, extravagant words that, that, that uh, eliminate precise distinctions in language. And I think that... Uh, 
that, you know, there's an essential dishonesty in the way we speak in English. Nothing could be good or bad. Everything is terrific or awful or terrible. Terri- you know, very funny. Terrific and terrible mean the same thing, really. And yet we, uh, we, we use them in opposite sentences. So we walk around in this vague uh, uh, haze of meaninglessness. And our whole lives are spent uttering meaningless words, the meaning of which we don't understand. So give me the Donald in that sense. He's, he uses the crudest, you know, third grade English, but at least he communicates with it. Whereas someone like uh, Mr. Cruz, or who has a, a wide vocabulary that he tends to abuse and misuse, it, 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 it doesn't give the impression of sincerity and, and integrity and honesty. And I'm not saying that, that, that he's an insincere or, or, not, or dishonest person, but just that the educated classes in America so misuse the language that they can be fairly accused, I think, of, of a deceptive use of language. Well, I, um, I wonder sometimes if it, to go back to Latin for just one second, you know, Latin has a nice, uh, a very clear use of adjectives, the positive degree, the comparative degree, the superlative degree, as we have good, better, and best. But in Latin, as in, uh, as in modern Italian, there are nuances. So, for example, uh, uh, good uh, is you know it's a it's a strong word. Better can mean uh, not just better, but rather good. You know, in other words, it's a, it's a it's it can be both a comparative comparative or a kind of absolute comparative. You're saying that it's it's simply of a status of of, uh, of of more good things than simply good. And best can also like optimus in Latin doesn't mean just best. It can be really very very fine thing. And there's a precision. And a flexibility in these in these adjectives that allows them to use simple words and effectively, uh, sort of a la a la Donald Trump, whereas we are constantly searching for uh, more and more extravagant, ridiculous words. When when I was a small child, I, I remember noticing that the the lar- the smallest box <clears throat> of detergent you could get was large. This was, you know, there was no such thing as small or medium. It was large, economy-sized, giant economy-sized, super-value, giant economy-sized. So if you, we, we start off in American English. We start off with large means small, and, you, and we go from there. <laughs> well, and it's funny to, to I, I'm thinking of of, uh, of two sort of pop culture references. I'm thinking uh, the Transformers. When I was was coming up as a child, the the leader of the Autobots was called Optimus Prime, and yes. uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't know that uh, the the people who maybe thought up uh, the the Transformers uh, wanted they they at least knew their Latin or, or they they had a reason to say he's the first of the best. Uh, yes, exactly. I, you know, my my children like uh, they like Transformers and they like Thundercats. And I I didn't know what it was about uh, that uh, things turning into other things. It was like something out of Ovid's Metamorphoses. But Optimus Prime, it's 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 a convincing title. Yeah, it, Optimus. It is. <laughs> Yes, uh, and uh, and then uh, a little bit lower than than the Autobots, but uh, Spaceballs, in, in which uh, there was there was all the light there was light speed, and then there was ludicrous speed, 
and uh, <laughs> that was that was beyond beyond light speed. But I, I think I think you have a I think you make a really good point, uh, Dark. Let me better to use. Uh, a, a lower form simply something very good or very very good uh, i'm reminded that when the italians you know want to say something is beautiful they'll just keep adding isimas to the end bellissima and you you know you i think your point's well taken that it's better to say something simply to a greater extent than to misuse these words you know, there's a famous passage of scripture where, which is taken by Quakers to mean you shouldn't uh, swear an oath, and uh, where our Lord ends up saying, let your yes be yes and your no be no. It has actually a broader extension than uh, in simply saying, implying that you shouldn't take an oath, which I think it, it, actually, I don't think it means that at all. But if you're going to say something is good or bad, say it. If you start going over the top, that's the most fantastic thing I've ever seen in my whole life. Oh, my God. Well, when you start talking like that, there's no sincerity. You're lying. How, how many things in your life are really awesome or are really terrific or really tremendous? Well, very few. Not, certainly, they don't happen once a month, maybe once every two or three years. But when we overuse language like this... Uh, we are uh, we're being insincere, and one of the things our Lord was telling us was to say what we mean. Don't 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 hype up everything because it it, it begins to suggest you know that, that we're lying. There's a great uh, the great Confucian uh, parable, you know, the very famous one when the rulers of old wanted to change the kingdom, they first you know improved the dukedom, and when they wanted to change the dukedom, the, they went and they they improved, they uh, helped the family, and before they could do this with the family, and finally, at the very end of this sequence of things, you, you got to start at the beginning. They said they they used what is it? They understood the meaning of words. That that is the beginning of integrity. That the integrity that translated up will will translate into the correct administration of a commonwealth or a kingdom. Now, there's something really deeply profound in that. Yeah, of course, I don't know Chinese. I should ask our friend Professor Chaves, the Chinese scholar, and maybe he can uh, tell us about that. But uh, but it, whatever Confucius, Confucius said. There is something deeply profound that if we, we can reattach ourselves to reality by using words correctly. On that note, Stephen, I think we should let our people go. <laughs> uh, if you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, please email thomas at fleming.foundation. We want to remind you that Latin is a production of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. And any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to james at fleming.foundation. As always, thanks to our Golden Charter members who we produce these podcasts for and who ensure that they can be produced in the first place. I want to thank Dr. Fleming for his time. And until next time, on behalf of the Foundation, make the most of a dark age. <laughs>